Please be seated. Before we move into our time of the word, we want to do something that uh, we do occasionally here, which is to send out a group from this church as they are to engage in ministry and mission, uh, in this case in South Carolina as a team involved in disaster response due to the hurricane. And so I want to invite those of the team that are here in this service to come forward and also any of our elders who are present in this service to come. Uh, and we'll ask for the elders to lay hands on them while I lead us in prayer uh, so that we can uh, send them out. This is a team, and you can come on up. Uh, this is a team that is going on the first front. Uh, this is a ministry that our deacons and our missions committee are committed to seeing ongoing. We tend to figure that by sending seven people down uh, for a week that we're going to fix everything. Uh, but we do want to be involved, and so there will be other teams going throughout the year. Uh, and there'll be opportunities uh, to support as well as to go and to serve uh, the people uh, that are affected uh, by uh, the hurricane from a few weeks ago. So if you would, bow with me as we come before our Lord and pray. Father God, we give, give thanks to you that you who have redeemed us out of our own disaster have also enlisted us that you may send us into the world that is experiencing disaster. In particular, we pray for this group that goes out today. We thank you for them, their willingness to serve, and for the abilities that you have given to them, and even the flexibility with the schedule that enables them to go as they go to serve, as they go to survey, and as they represent us. Lord, bless them, and may your power go with them, that the labors that they engage in, which are mostly physical and manual, would also testify to those who are there to encourage the believers and to give witness to those who are skeptical of your love and of your grace. May their labors, along with others who are ministering with them, be pleasing to you and blessing to those who are around them. We pray to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all. Well, is the Bible reliable? That's the question we are going to explore here this morning. If you have been with us, well, even if you haven't been with us, for the past several weeks, we've been engaged in a series that is called Explore God. And we, along with dozens of other churches in this historic triangle, have been looking at these questions, uh, at, a, at a handful of questions that are almost universally asked and looking at them and seeing what the answers are that we might be strengthened in our faith and those who may be seeking would be encouraged to, uh, to embrace faith. Um, and so as we come this morning, we come to this question. It's the second to the last question in our series. Is the Bible reliable? Our primary text for this morning is going to be from 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. Hear the word of the Lord. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 
the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we do come to you at this time as we ask this question, and we ask it of you, for uh, the word and the, that is in question is the word that uh, you have given. And so, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten us uh, according to truth. You would enable us to see and to uh, think, and you would open our hearts to receive uh, the truth as it is revealed to us. We come to you, O Lord, praying that you would speak through your word and through your general revelation through this world, uh, that we, your people, would come to know you even better. Bless us in this time that we consider this question. We pray to your glory and for our good in Christ. Amen. When Ferdinand Magellan set sail in 1519 to circumnavigate the earth, he led a fleet of five ships. And on board those five ships were recorded to be 35 compasses. The compass is a tool, it seems to some extent, that would be a, a, a lot for seven. Why seven of these little instruments that uh, they were able to set sail by? I mean, a compass is simply a, a magnetized strip of metal which can balance on the head of a pin and then swinging either way always comes to rest pointing to the north. I mean, it's a cool trick. It certainly, for those who know how to use them, uh, can benefit them because if you always know where north is and you're going in another direction, those who know how to use it can figure out which direction they're going. If they know where they're heading, they, they, they can chart their course by the use of this compass. And yet, it is just a tool. It's a relatively simple tool, although it's also an important tool and it's an essential tool. No explorer in the ancient seas would have ever set sail without a compass. And even today, no experienced hiker would dare set out on the Appalachian Trail uh, without a compass. And the reality is no man or woman, or even no, no child that is beginning to think for themselves, no, nobody should try to navigate in this world without some kind of compass, some kind of guide that tells you where you are and where it is that you are going. Now, the good news for us is that God has provided us a compass of sorts, and he has done so in giving us his Bible, what he refers to as his word. Uh, time and again, it's testified throughout this Bible that this is God's word, the idea that God breathed, that God has given to us. It's a Bible is a tool that God has designed to enable his people to navigate through this life. And one of the things that I find particularly fascinating as, we, as I liken this to a compass is just as the compass needle always finds its way to point to the north no matter where it is and how you turn it, this Bible always finds its resting place pointing to the person of Jesus Christ and the cross. And because that becomes the focal point, we then are able to know our, where we are, where we stand, and where it is that we need to go. C.S. Lewis, with this in mind, and, and really just all that the Bible teaches, uh, made this uh, important and fascinating um, uh, declaration. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. 
And so God has given us this Bible that is our compass that constantly points us to Jesus Christ so that we know where we are, we know where we are going, we, need, we, know, we can know where we need to go. And using Lewis's imagery, because we are able to navigate uh, this, not only by pointing us to Jesus, we're able to see the horizon, see everything, uh, because of this word that God has given to us. But the question we need to consider this morning the question that is asked by many people, the question that should be asked by many people, including those who already trust this Bible, is, is the Bible actually reliable? Is it a re reliable tool, a reliable compass? You see, any error itself can cause significant problems for us in this life. Just because it's mostly accurate, just because it contains truth, isn't sufficient to guide us through life. My understanding is that the, those who have studied the situation have come to believe that it was a simple navigational error that was responsible for Amelia Earhart's disappearance in the Pacific in 1937. In an article from the London Telegraph, I, I, read, I read this. During the final stages of her attempt to circumnavigate the globe in her twin-engine Lockheed Electra, uh, uh, the, the American um, researchers have tended to conclude that Earhart was uh, very close to her target island when contact was lost and ditched or crashed just 35 miles uh, to the northwest. That's what they estimate. And so in the article as it, um, as it presented was saying to us, this is, she was out in this, this plane, she was trying to circumnavigate the earth, and it was a minor and a, a navigational error that got her close to where she was going, but ended up in tragedy and, and disaster, just 35 miles from the island, and yet she either crashed or she had to ditch her plane uh, and was never found again. And so as we come to this question and we look at this Bible, even if we have a high view of the Bible, we do need to ask this question along with those who might be skeptical of it, is are we, are we, um, uh, are we in danger of crashing? if we follow the Bible as our, our guide for living. In other words, maybe it has a lot of good stuff. Maybe it has a, a lot of truth, but if it's only even minor error can cause tremendous damage. Maybe not quite as ominous, we can ask this question is, even if it's only slightly off, would it lead us to a life of frustration and confusion? And the reason I ask that is just from an experience that I had a number of years ago. I recognized when, when uh, we were living in Pittsburgh, when I recognized that people were using GPS as a regular part of their day-to-day -day lives, carrying it uh, in their car. Um, they didn't have it on the phone at the time, but, uh, but they were trusting this computer-generated mapping to tell them where they were going and even to turn here, turn there um, at any given time. The problem that I noticed, and I didn't have a GPS at the time, uh, but I noticed in riding with friends who had GPS in their car, particularly in Pittsburgh, is the GPS was not especially helpful. Now, the reason for that is this. If you've not been to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is it, it built into hillsides. The bottom of most of the hills, you would find mills and mines and different companies, and, and they were there. Sometimes they've been turned into shopping centers. Sometimes there's the remnant of whatever had been uh, earlier in the 20th century still exists. And then on the hillsides above these different companies, 
you find houses that are built, you know, relatively modest houses, slightly up on the hillside, a little bit nicer houses, a little bit further up the hillside, very nice houses, high up on the hillside. And the company would build little communities. And so the higher up on the hillside was indication of higher up than the company that you were. And then down in the hillsides, through each one of these uh, neighborhoods or, or housing sizes, you had stair steps all over the city, built into the side of the hills. You have stairs that go from the top of the hill all the way down to the bottom of the hill into the community where these mills and mines were built. And the reason for the stair steps is for generations, the workers would take the stairs to work and they would take the stairs back home each day. And so the stair steps have been there and continue uh, to be there and continue in many cases to be functional stair steps today. Now, the problem for the GPS, though, is that in Pittsburgh, every one of those stair steps is named. And so as you're driving your car, trying to get someplace on roads that are often now one way, where they weren't at the time, it will tell you, make a right turn on such and such way. And you're looking at a stair step that is about as wide as this table with us, you know, the banister down the middle of it. And you're looking at the hill and the houses and thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to get this car up that thing. And so you're driving, frustrated, possibly even lost. It's not disastrous. Eventually, you probably find out where you're going or at least find your way home. But the fact that there is detail and truth and yet error, simple as it may be, leads to frustration and confusion. And so as we come to this Bible and ask this question, are we embracing this as our guide to tell us how we should live and subjecting ourselves to the possibility of some confusion and frustration if it contains any errors? Is it going to direct us to go the wrong way? And that's an important question that we need to wrestle with as we consider this question this morning. How reliable is the Bible? And what I want to do this morning is to take a, a few minutes to explain how I've come to believe that the Bible is thoroughly and absolutely reliable. There's a lot of different reasons that we can explore, and time doesn't permit me to do justice really to any of them, but I'm going to look relatively briefly at three different categories. First is that want to explore the, the fact that I have found the Bible to be internally reliable. Second, we will explore what we have found that the Bible is historically reliable. And then finally, that the Bible is experientially reliable. As we begin, we start with the inherent or the internally, internal parts of the Bible. The Bible is internally reliable. What I mean by that is what the Bible teaches, the contents on these pages has proven itself to be reliable. In one sense, that shouldn't be surprising because the text that we read this morning tells us all scripture is breathed out by God, or as is more commonly uh, phrased, has more commonly phrased, it's, it is God-breathed. The, the Greek word there is theonoustos. It's often translated inspired. And so a lot of translations will say the, all scripture is in, inspired uh, by God. 
And there's, that's helpful, but it could be a little bit misleading in the intensity with which God is claiming through Paul in his letter to Timothy here and what this word theonoustos actually means. Bible scholar Benjamin Warfield, who goes by BB to his old friends, um, he's been dead for a while, so, uh, but, uh, so you're free to consider him a friend or not. He was one of the great teachers of the early 20th century, taught at Princeton, one of the great Bible scholars. And as he considered that word and the idea that it's often understood as being translated as inspired or inspiration, he, he kind of pushes back against that and saying that it, it really is inspiration. Inspired is probably not the ideal word to be using here. Because the idea of inspiration gives the idea that there was something there and then God breathed into it. In other words, that there was like a, a work of humanity and God breathed into it. That would be inspired. The imagery that he's using and pushing against would be kind of like something you would see in a, in a Disney movie where an artist or somebody creates something. And it may be a beautiful work of art. It might be some product. It's an inanimate thing. And no matter how well done it is, it just kind of lays there. And then all of a sudden, you just see this pixie dust come upon it, and boom, the thing is now coming alive. That would be the implications of inspiration. And we use the word about this, uh, about God's word, as inspiration, but it leads us to believe, if we were to take this seriously, that a bunch of people sat down and wrote this inanimate thing, and God says, okay, I like that, and then put the pixie dust on it, and boom, it's come to life. When the reality is, what is claimed throughout the scripture is that this is God spoke this, and he used various people about 40 authors in all, to bring to life the very words that he had spoken. He didn't put life into something that was at one time dead. He put into reality something that he had spoken. And so Warfield says a better word than inspiration would be spuration. Now, in one sense, it seems like it's an argument that's not worth considering, but it's important that we understand. Here is the claim that the scripture is making of itself. And I'm saying that what the scripture claims of itself is found to be internally reliable. And so there's a dramatic thing. God, who created all things, is speaking and speaking to us and speaking this word, using these human authors to communicate what he wanted to communicate. He didn't adopt the words of different people. And while it's a subtle, it's an important difference. And what makes it important is it means that God is in control from the very beginning. That if there is a God, and I'm talking to people who might be skeptic, now you need to use your mind and think, if there was a God, how difficult would it be for him to communicate? What would he do? And if he communicated, how reliable would it be? How consistent would it be? One of the amazing things about God's word that we have here is that God did use those human authors, 40 in all, wrote 66 books that are contained here. And in these pages, there is an incredible continuity from beginning to end, telling one story from a variety of different perspectives and yet incredibly consistent all the way through. It's a story that is told in four major epics, deals with the creation. We see those in the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, and yet that creation is appealed to throughout the rest of the book. Then we see the second epic that in its actual occurrence took place really in a very short time, the fall. As our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were walking in perfect fellowship with God, then decided they would rather be equal with God than to be in fellowship with God, and therefore 
sinned against God and all the consequence that has taken place subsequently. And then redemption, which is the bulk of this Bible, is God telling us here is what he is going to do to purchase a people back, to make them his own. And that isn't something that we find beginning in the New Testament. That begins in Genesis chapter 3. What Bible scholars talk about as the proto-euangelion, the first declaration of the gospel found in scripture. God's response to the rebellion of humanity against him is to promise that he would bring back a people that would be his own and he would do so at his own expense through his own sacrifice. And actually in Genesis 3.15, what we see with eyes that can look back through the giving of his own son. Genesis 3.15, all the way back, and what we have is that thread that goes back, and almost all of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see people then who are in need of redemption, proving how much that they are alienated from God and how much they need God's grace that works its way through the entirety of the Bible. And at the very end, we are pointed to the promise of God that will restore all things, both in harmony with him and in the beauty of the way they were originally created. That theme runs through consistently written by 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period. That is incredible. In fact, the only way that's going to happen is if God doesn't. And that's precisely what we find in the Scriptures. If we come to this passage, to the Bible, with, to answer this question with an unbiased mind, if we come to the Bible and read it uh, with, as a, with an unbiased reading, treating the scripture the way that we would treat any other piece of literature, using the same standards of evaluating of the scripture as we would with any other type of writing. We will stand amazed at how consistent the claims of the scriptures are. But what about the contradictions? I mean, they must be there. I keep hearing about them. Mostly I hear them intensely declared by people who never bothered to read the Bible, but that's a whole other problem. But there are there. Uh, there are brought, those kinds of claims are brought up by people who have and have poured their lives into studying this. The reality is the contradictions that people think are there really are not. And again, if we came with an unbiased approach to reading these things, if we consider what we consider to be contradictions in the scripture, and we would look at the scripture with the same lens that we would look at other things, such as the, the newspaper, we would recognize that it's not a contradiction, but it is a difference in perspective. Here's what I mean. If you were to pick up the paper today and read about the William & Mary ball game yesterday, you can pick up a couple of different newspapers, and I guarantee you, unless somebody is syndicated, you're going to have a different perspective in every one of those newspapers. If you're going to pick up the newspaper that is here on the peninsula and then pick up a newspaper that's in Portland, Maine, you're going to have vastly different perspectives, even though the same facts are going to be shared. 
And yet, with the different writers, however many people are covering it, not only are they going to share different perspectives, but different things are going to seem important to different writers. Different people will declare that the game hinged either on this play or on this play, either on somebody's tremendous success or somebody's tremendous failure. So who's wrong? The reality is we go to the newspapers and we recognize whether it's a sporting event or something that is far more important that it's not about somebody who's right or somebody who's wrong. It's just different people demonstrating their own personality, their own perspective, relating to the same set of facts. They're going to communicate them in slightly different ways. And sometimes some of the details seem to be a little bit skewed. Somebody might claim that a game is a blowout and somebody else might claim that it was much closer than expected. Now, which one is it? It depends on your perspective going in. The same is true for the scriptures, testifying to the same historic realities, but sometimes it's written by people who have been benefited, and sometimes it's written by people who are curious. Sometimes it's written by people who are the home team, and sometimes it's written by people who have been adopted in from an outside perspective. And when you take that into consideration, it alleviates almost every one of the things that we consider to be inconsistent. And even the very specific questions that people have, like the differences in numbers. Somebody says, well, you know, gave a number here, and somebody else talking about the same account gave a different number. Well, I mean, that seems like it would be irreconcilable, doesn't it? Except that we understand even in our own day-to-day -day relationships there are different kinds of people. There are those who are the accountant kind of people, and they're going to give you an exact number. And then there's the rest of us who are going to give you a general number. And so somebody might say, you know, well, there were, you know, 752. And if you take it across an average, it's, you know, and, and they'll give you a precision number. You know, somebody else might say, eh, there were several hundred, you know, nearly a thousand. It's not a matter of somebody being wrong or even necessarily somebody exaggerating. It's just a question based on personality of how is somebody reporting and recording their own experience with the same set of facts. And when we look at the scriptures as that one story from beginning to end, recognizing that it's being testified by people over a 1600 year period from different cultures and different experiences, and we grant them the same latitude we would grant to our favorite newspaper writers, we realize it's not a contradiction at all. I had a conversation recently with a young man who was concerned that, uh, about his own ideas, and he made this statement. He said, look, I know grace didn't come in until the New Testament. And I said, grace runs from beginning to end. I mean, if you think about it, it was grace that God created humanity in the first place. It was grace that God gave everything to our first parents. And then it was incredibly gracious of him to respond to the rebellion by taking the punishment upon himself. Throughout the scriptures, we see an incredible consistency that testifies to itself. And so I feel totally comfortable saying an honest reading of the Bible will alleviate many of the concerns and questions that people have. But I do need to acknowledge that it's not always easy. I mean, there's a lot of things that are confusing in the scriptures. That, I mean, it's complex. And some things are, are mysteries that we're not intended to fully understand. And that shouldn't be shocking. If this is the word of God revealing himself to us, you would tend to expect there's some things that God understands that we're not going to get because he is above us. And even the things that we are able to get, they're not all easy. 
we have to put effort into understanding, studying, considering, looking at it from different directions, learning from other people who may have studied the various questions that each of us might ask. But the answers are there. It's been said, and I think it's a worthwhile thing to consider, is this, is that if you want to know the mind of God, sometimes you need to use your own. But if you do use your own mind, coming with both an open mind, the same fairness, not giving special treatment, the same fairness that you would give with any other literature, see the consistency and the testimony and the various perspective and stand in awe with what God has done, I believe that you will with me find that this is a reliable book from an internal content standpoint. The Bible is also historically reliable. One of the things that we might stand amazed at is this, is the archaeologists are continually finding things that would validate the testimony of scriptures over and over again. One of the things I was not aware of until relatively recently, in part because I never thought to ask, but apparently archaeologists, whether they are believers or not, when they are wanting to find certain places or references to people or uh, evidences of certain events that have taken place in antiquity, one of the primary sources that they'll go to is the Bible to look for clues as to where they might find the evidences of those things, and then they dig, or they do whatever the archaeologists will do, and so often have found things that are confirmed to what the Bible has declared. Now, one scholar, had, I think, pointed out as I was considering this, that, um, that it's archaeology itself while it can validate certain things, it cannot prove that Christianity is right or all that the Bible teaches is true because much of what the Bible teaches is spiritual principle. And so you can find all sorts of artifacts that doesn't prove that the spiritual principles themselves are true. But it does validate the history that is recorded in these pages. And if you find that to be reliable, then it opens us up to the possibility that all that it teaches is reliable as well. But it's not just the archaeology that is historically makes it historically reliable, but it's also the original documents that we have. And that becomes a point of conflict for a number of people in, in various academic circles. But I want you to hear this. Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce says this. There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. There is no other ancient written document that has anywhere near the attestation as the Bible that we have. And then Bruce goes on and he gives a couple of examples that I'll share with you. He gives a number and I'm only going to share uh, three here. The first is he says Homer's Iliad, which was written roughly around 900 BC. Does anybody know when the earliest manuscript that we have was written? I thought I would do a little interactive here, keep you awake so it doesn't just become like a college class. That's about in 500 AD or in so, or 400, uh, no, 400 BC. Um, so there's about a 500 year gap between when the first manuscript was written and the um, the newest, the most recent one, or the oldest one that we have, the, the one that goes back as far, and there's about a 500-year gap. 
And does anybody know how many copies of that we have? Gil? Um, well, we have to check here because this might be one of those things because I, my note says 643. But anyway, that's um, <laughs> so either one of mine's phony or you're missing one. But anyway, that's um, so they're in the same book. All right. So, okay, but you, you get the picture here. You've got this ancient document that nobody is questioning the authenticity of. There is a 500-year gap between the time it was written and the document, the oldest document that we have, and we have a pretty good number of them, 643, to compare the consistency of those documents. It goes on, Bruce goes on, and he talks about Caesar's Gallic Wars. That was written somewhere between uh, 100 um, B.C. and... 44 BC. The most, the oldest copy that we have dates back to about 1000 AD. Anybody have to take a guess at how many copies of Caesar's work we have? Ten. And yet nobody is questioning the veracity of Caesar's work. Those ten copies complement one another and so we have this work that there was over a thousand year gap between when it was originally written and the, new, uh, the oldest document that we have, and there's only 10 copies in existence. And then Bruce compares that to just the New Testament itself. Uh, the Old Testament really wasn't much in question, but the New Testament was written between 50 AD and 100 AD, the various authors by the time the first was write, written and, and the, the last stroke of the pen. And the earliest complete New Testament, not just fragments, but the earliest complete New Testament that we have dates to about 225 AD. So you have about a 125 year gap between the last written book and the, the, the oldest document that we have, complete document, again, not the fragments. But when you consider the fragments as well, does anybody have any idea how many copies are known that we have of the New Testament? 24,000. And the point that he's making here is, look, we have all these ancient documents, and for good reason, we consider them to be reliable. We compare them with one another. We have a good sense of what they are. One, we have over 600 copies of. That makes sense. The other one, we have 10. And the scripture has more than 24,000 complete New Testaments. It's only like 5,500 if you want to take, um, uh, uh, well, uh, we have 24,000 including fragments, 5,500 if you were to take the complete New Testaments. I mean, the, the, the differences, uh, they're, they're not even the same ballpark of the number of copies that we have that complement one another as compared to other ancient literature. And yet everything else is left to just be assumed, and we look at the, many people look at the Bible with a critical eye, claiming that there are inconsistencies uh, because of whatever reason, and yet there is no other ancient document to which there is as much attestation. One Bible scholar says that those who study the, uh, the scriptures as their, their discipline for academic study, they are almost embarrassed with the riches that they have at their disposal as compared to people who are studying other documents. But are there differences in those documents? Yes. In fact, there are more differences found in the scriptures than there are in any of those other ancient documents. But there's a good reason for that. Anybody want to guess what that is? Because we have 10 of one and 24,000 of another. 
24,000 people are writing things down. Now, before you get too concerned about this, one of the things that we need to understand is this. Almost every one of those differences of the 24,000 documents falls into one of two categories. Spelling differences or grammar. Somebody likes commas, somebody doesn't. That's it. Almost every one of the differences can come into those different categories. I mean, it, it's no more significant than the difference between the way the Canadians spell things wrong, right, Ron? And um, using the E at the end of things, and how we spell things. It doesn't change the meaning of anything, and any of the changes, any of the things that would fall in differences, no matter what category, none of them strike to the claims the Bible makes of itself, or about any of the facts or any other beliefs. None of those things affect those things at all. And so the historic documents that we have also prove to me that there is a reliability of the Bible. And finally, we need to recognize that it's experientially reliable. And what I mean by that is we have countless testimonies of people from various cultures, from times through history, who have embraced the message that they found to be consistent in these pages, have turned their lives to trust in Jesus Christ, to whom these pages point to, and then in obedience to Jesus' instruction, if you love me, you'll obey what I command, have made this their guidebook for the way they live and will testify to the transformation that they have experienced, not only in their personal lives, but their interpersonal relationships, their families, their communities, their cultures, even history itself has been turned upside down, transformed, and shaped by the words that God has revealed in these pages. And that shouldn't be a surprise because again, consider the words that God used through Paul writing to Timothy that were our primary text this morning when he says this, all scripture is breathed out or is God breathed by God and is profitable or it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, these are experiential kinds of words here. It's not for the purpose of just gathering information. God has given us the Bible, not so much for information, but as for formation. It's not just to fill our minds so we can win a Bible quiz competition, but to see and have it continually guide and correct and encourage and instruct and direct and lead and shape our lives as individuals, as families, as a church, as the church throughout the world. Very experiential. And those who have given themselves to it time and again have testified that their experience is consistent with what is declared in these pages. And so as I look at this question, is the Bible reliable? I have come to this conviction Absolutely. And I've staked my life on it, literally, by pouring myself into studying it and so that I am able to teach. Much I do not understand, 
but I have come to this understanding because of the reliability of my own experience is this, is what I don't know, what I don't understand, I have full confidence that the answer is there because I've had so many of my questions and misunderstandings already corrected and answered. And so that when I come to something that I don't understand that seems to be wrong, I'm no longer troubled by that as I had been at one time because I know that there's an answer. It may be somebody that I know has it. It may be that it's something that will come to me in time. It may be something that because of my own brokenness and finiteness, I may not know in this life. But I have no doubt in my mind or in my heart that it is true. I have no more doubts that this is reliable than I do the sun is going to come up tomorrow. I don't know the sun's coming up tomorrow and neither do you. But it's come up every other day of my life. And so I would be shocked if it doesn't tomorrow. And so I want to leave you with a challenge. I found this to be worthy and reliable and so I challenge you to read it. And if you read it with an unbiased mind, you will find that it speaks not only of creation, but to the chaos that we see in our world. You will see that it speaks to our questions, to our doubts, and to our fears. But it will resolve them because it points us to Jesus Christ and the cross through which he guides us. Father, bless us with an understanding of the word you've given, that you may shape our lives and our relationships, and that you may be pleased and glorified in your people. We pray in Christ. Amen. Well, God has spoken, and he still speaks today through his word. Bible. And also here at this table, a gift that Jesus has given to his church, to those who have looked to him for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God.